scripture reading today is from Genesis 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and the lord god planted a garden in eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the lord god made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil a river flowed out of eden to water the garden and it divided and became four rivers The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. Amen. Uh, welcome again. And my gosh, I just got to acknowledge that uh, intro video again. I see like heads bobbing all over the room. It's just a, I think it's an excuse for us to show off our low end speakers. Um, it's almost as nice as what Kevon's got bumping in the back of his, uh, his ride these days. So anyway, all right, uh, enough with the jokes. Uh, we are in the front end of a series looking at the book of Genesis, as you can see. And um, I'll again apologize for the second week in a row uh, for this overly long introduction which I hope will be helpful. Uh, But as we said last week, the reason that it's important to look at Genesis is not just because it is, after all, you know, the first book of the Bible, and the reason that it's not just important to look at Genesis, uh, even though it's also the foundation of the New Testament as well, but the reason I think it's really important to look at Genesis is because that Genesis gives us, almost more than any other book in the Bible, a look at who And what the Bible is all about, and that is, of course, the person of God. Because the Bible is about God first. It's not about you. It's not about me. Your name actually doesn't appear in it, by the way, if you haven't noticed. Yeah, the Bible isn't about you and me and what we've got to do to earn God's favor. It's not about a deity who only uses the good or the really, really ridiculously good looking. But it's about a God of grace who comes into our world and offers us himself. And yet, along with that, Genesis also gives us a really great look 
at who we are and who people are supposed to be and how the world is supposed to look. And so to see who we're supposed to be and how the world's supposed to look, I think there's arguably no better place to look than here in Genesis chapter 2. Now, Right away when we get to chapter 2, the careful reader, of course, will notice that chapter 1 and chapter 2, these creation accounts are totally different. There appear to be like this massive amount of discrepancy, stuff out of order from one to the other. There's a whole lot of differences. I mean, what's what's going on here? I mean, is, is like the writer of Genesis, is he just confused? Is he just sort of some, you know, fool from antiquity, some dumb person because he lived a long time ago and couldn't get the story Straight? Is that what's happening here? No. What's going on? Well, as we said last week, the best way to interpret any passage in the Bible is simply to make sure, again, we stay out of ditches we weren't supposed to be in, is simply to ask, what did this passage mean to the people in the day it was written? Uh, who was the original audience? What was their world like? What was going through their heads? And if we can answer those questions, then we get way firmer footing in our day when we ask our questions. And perhaps the first clue that Genesis 2 is supposed to be something totally different than Genesis 1 is simply the heading, the, the, the introductory statement we get here in chapter 2, verse 4, where you can see the order of what's created is being switched. Look at this, chapter 2, verse 4. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. See, this is a this is supposed to be a transitional sentence between two different separate creation accounts and the first account, most of chapter one, all of chapter one, some of two, is all about how God made first the heavens and the earth, all about how God is the creator of the cosmos, how he subdued the seas and the oceans, which in, in, in days of in antiquity were the untamable places that no one could tame except this God, the one true God did. Chapters one is, chapter 1 is all about how the, the, the cosmos isn't chaotic, it's made on purpose, uh, it's got a design to it, and how the sun and the moon, they're not gods like they were in every other culture. Matter of fact, the sun and the moon aren't even given names in chapter 1, they're just called the greater light and the lesser light. Why? Be, because they're just tools made by this God to rule over his universe and his world how he sees fit. See, chapter 1, Genesis 1 is all about the heavens and the earth, but chapter 2 is about something different, about the earth and the heavens, the earth and the heavens. And so why the switch? Well, this chapter is therefore not about the cosmos and why it was made. This chapter is all about people and why we were made, all about humans and what we're here for. Chapter 2, therefore, seeks to answer the question, who are we and what are we here for? And let me show you how especially you can know this. One of the greatest breakthroughs in the last 20 years in biblical archaeology is to, it's something that can help us understand the mindset of people in the ancient Near East and probably the writer of Genesis 2 as well. Through the discovery of something that's been called the, the MIS-P ritual, M-I-S-P-I, or what's called the Mesopotamian animation ritual. 
Yeah, there's your phrase for you. Uh, In religious cultures of the day, around the time that Genesis was written, these ancient cultures worshipped statues that they animated or that they imagined they brought to life. And the ritual began, the Miss P ritual began with a craftsman with an artist who expertly crafted and carved a selim, an image. And once the work was complete, the idol was taken to a sacred garden and left overnight. And when the cultic priest came back the next day, they would celebrate and declare, behold, the image that the gods have given us. And they would animate it or bring the image to life through a ritual cleansing, which involved cleaning out the eyes and blowing into the mouth and the nostrils in order to bring that image to life. And then the image would be installed in the temple of the gods. And then, unfortunately for those same artists, they had their hands ritually cut off, uh, placed inside a sacrificial sheep along with the tools they had used and washed down a sacred river so as to get rid of all the evidence the people had ever made the gods. Now, why would they do this? Well, because even these ancients knew that people should not be making gods. But if a god were real, he would be making people. So take Genesis 2, line it up against that literature. What do we see, huh? Well, we see a god described with the Hebrew word for craftsman, a yetzar, creating a Solomon image of himself and placing that image in a sacred garden. And God breathes into the nostrils of his image, the breath of life. He animates him, brings the human to life, creates a soulmate, and together they're to rule over the garden with the sacred river flowing out of it. What do you think Genesis 2 is? Hmm? Is it just a children's story, huh? Fairy tale? Or is it perhaps a deadly and highly sophisticated critique of all the false gods, pagan gods, false religions of the people in its day? Listen, do you think the author is doing primarily science here? No. Or is he doing primarily theology? Yes. The author, can you see, is showing us who we are, who God is saying we are meant for, what we're meant for. And that's what Genesis 2 is, therefore, it's an account of the earth and the heavens, an account of who we are and what we're made for. So now, let's ask, in that light, with introduction over... Who are we? What does the Bible say we were made for? Or a better way of asking it might be, what does the ideal human life look like in the heart of God? Three things we're going to see here from chapter two. We were made for three things. This is saying, number one, we were made for worship that leads to freedom. Number two, work that leads to meaning. And finally, show you what we mean when we get there, a wedding that leads to to joy. Here we go. Number one, we were made for worship that leads to freedom. Look at verse 16. <clears throat> and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now for all the, uh, the ex hippies in the room, I mean boomers, yeah, you may remember that old uh, Joni Mitchell song, uh, Woodstock, uh, made famous by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and the lyrics go, they sing that, uh, we are stardust, we are golden, we are begging the devil's pardon, and we got to get ourselves, where, come on, 
Nobody knows this song. Come on. First and second, they were rocking it. All right, I see where the boomers go. All right, got to get ourselves back to the garden. Back to the garden. That was the line. We got to get ourselves back to the garden. I think some of y'all knew that and just didn't want to give in right there. All right, but that was a generation's catchphrase. Looking at you, John Lloyd. That was a generation's catchphrase. <laughs> why, why was that their catchphrase? Well, because you can see people from all over, of course, can see in the Genesis 2, and you can see that in the garden, back in the garden, there was this perfect kind of freedom, right? Perfect kind of harmony and balance. There was this freedom and liberty with nature and others. And of course, you grew up in the U.S. and you heard stuff like, give me liberty, right? Give me freedom or give me death. Well, that's you. That's us. Well, the Garden of Eden looks like this real idyllic place. We got to get ourselves back to, and if we can do that, everything is going to be just fine. You know what? If you think that, well, then you're right and you're wrong. And let me show you what I mean. Because yes, inside that garden was freedom, was perfect harmony with nature and humanity. And the world's ills in a way would be solved by a return to those things. But what I want you to see was that before any of those things, or should I say held together by all those things, that was holding the harmony and the peace and the freedom and liberty together was this one thing in world. And that thing is worship. Worship held it all together. Because if you, you, if you think you can have all the harmony and peace and love in the garden without the worship of the one true God, you've missed the point of Genesis 2. But see, it was the worship of God in the garden that brought freedom that held that together. And you can know this is true because once the worship of God, that is, once the central act of honoring and obeying God as creator and king, once that diminished... What happened? Oh, the beauty and the freedom and the harmony of the garden diminished as well. It's the worship of God that held it together because people were made, yes, to be free, but they were made to worship first. And let me show you how especially you can know this. I mean, flash forward one book in the Bible to the book of Exodus, next book, and here's my question. Think of the book of Exodus. Here's my question. Why did God free those slaves, hmm? Why did he come to rescue the Hebrew people? And if you've seen the, the Prince of Egypt, or maybe you've seen, again, the Ten Commandments, you're thinking that you know the answer uh, because you saw the movie like I did, and in your mind, you're hearing the words of Charlton Heston, God rest his soul, saying, let my people go, right? You're thinking of that, and over and over you heard it, and you think, well, man, well if the good Chuck said it, well, it's got to be true, right? You know, And yeah, he said it over and over, but that's not what God said through Moses, close not quite because when you actually read the bible you unfold the story you see why god rescued them here's what moses said in chapters five chapter six chapter seven twice in eight twice in nine and you know once in ten just for good measure this is what the lord says let my people go so that they may worship me wow and some of you are saying, well, I never saw that before. I mean, why didn't anybody say that? Why didn't, you know, Charlton Heston say it, or at least like Christian Bale in the last one, right? You know, well, they didn't say it because those were people, those are lines written by 20, 21st century people. And we had a way different view of freedom than what actually God has in mind in his word. 
Our culture says freedom, true freedom is that first part. Let my people go. Man, be free. Live however you want to. Free the bird. You're just chasing the dream, running down the highway, right? No. You just be whatever you want to. And if you don't like what's happening, man, just deconstruct it all. Call it oppressive and build something new, right? But literally from the beginning, Genesis 2, in the book of Exodus, God is subverting our modern definition of freedom because here's how the Bible defines it. True freedom is being able to worship God and therefore whatever keeps us from that, whatever keeps us from being able to do that is a kind of slavery is showing you a person, yes, can be free on the outside, but be in absolute bondage and shackles on the inside. See, being free from chains, oh, that's one kind of liberation and God is absolutely unquestionably forever for that overturning despotic rulers respecting the rights of all people that started in the Bible that's biblical and just but if we stop there at our definition of freedom it's showing us we actually haven't gone far enough true freedom is the capacity to worship God and him alone the God didn't just say let my people go no it's let them go so that they may worship me which means this until you are bowed down in worship until your heart is ravished by the grace and the love and the presence of the one true god you are still a slave to something genesis 2 teaches us we were made for we were literally built for the worship of god and until our families and lives and hearts and minds and finances and time revolves around that oh we are not truly free no matter what somebody in our culture says. Which finally means, now this last thought for point number one. Hope you'll see. Oh, I love this. The Christian faith is therefore far less about the escape from something, about escape from hell, escape from judgment, although those things are real. Jesus taught about hell more than anyone in the Bible, in case you were asking, you came to church asking that question today, right? He came, he came teaching about those things. God's judgment, final judgment on human souls is real, but we were, we were never made first to escape something. No, we were made to pursue someone. There's a massive difference in and therefore, hear me, if your faith feels like some kind of a prison, right, if church feels like some kind of hell that you're in rather than a freedom, maybe it's because somewhere, somehow, it's become about avoiding trouble. Your faith has become about avoiding a bad reputation or, you know, avoiding consequences somehow or avoiding something unpleasant rather than a pursuit of the craftsman who made you and built you to know him and know his heart for you. See, maybe you've settled for something far shallower than the true freedom God built you for. That's number one. Number one, Genesis 2 shows us we were made for worship that leads to freedom. Number two, we were also made for work that leads to meaning. Look at verse 15. I love this. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, to bark a lounge and Netflix binge. 
No, it doesn't actually say that. No, to work it and to keep it. And let me show you why this one verse, why Genesis 2.15 is so important for us. Uh, A few years ago, there was a book called Habits of the Heart written by a Cal Berkeley professor named Robert Bella. He died, I think, three, four years ago. And in his book, Dr. Bella looked at American cultural values, looked at American religious values, and he sort of put words to something I think we all feel, which is that, for the most part, American, America, our values aren't as commonly held as they were even 50 years ago. He says, sure, you know, we kind of all come together every four years for the Olympics, the World Cup or something. But really, by contrast, it's a few decades ago, we don't have commonly held values anymore. Why is this? Well, he said our culture today could be defined by these two words, and he called it expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. And he said, basically, and he was not a Christian at all, but here was his conclusion. He said, if you want to know what the problem with America is, what our problem is going to continue to be, it's that everyone puts themselves first. The idea of the individual is king, the individual is queen, has gotten out of control. But near the end of the book, Bella proposed something fascinating. One idea, he said, would go a long way towards reweaving the fabric of American culture. And here's what he said. He said to make a real difference, quote, there would have to be a reappropriation of the idea of vocation of calling, a return in a new way to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely as a means to one's own advancement. What's he saying? Well, he's saying without knowing it, what Genesis 2 has always said, that work is something sacred, whether we acknowledge it or not, something holy, whether we acknowledge it or not. Work is something made by God to be used for the good of all and for the benefit of the individual. And so when work is seen like that, when work is seen as a good, when it's used as something that's beneficial to society and people and groups and the country, not just as a means of personal economic advancement, then our labor heals. Then our labor works. Then our labor keeps the world, to use Genesis 2 word. Bella says, our work could heal the nation if we used it and saw it rightly. You know what? He's right. He's right. Did you know by contrast in, a, in, the, in the New Testament, excuse me, Old Testament era, Genesis 2 era, there was another actually creation account that made the rounds. It was being circulated. It was the Babylonian creation myth. It was called the Enuma Elish. And in the Babylonian Enuma Elish, uh, the creation myth depicted the god Marduk killing a female goddess and out of her remains, out of her rotting carcass, he then made the universe and made people to be slaves to do the work that the gods didn't want to do. But the Bible, again, you see, couldn't be any more different or clear. The Bible says the universe was not born out of a rotting carcass or out of some divine conflict, but out of the will and choice of an artistic creator who delighted in the universe that he made. And work is therefore not a punishment. No, it's something that God designed us for that makes us both fully human and an imitator of the same creator. Look at Yahweh in Genesis 2. He's got his fingers where? In the dirt. Touching the earth, touching the dirt. No other God in some creation account would do this, but this God does. Why? He honors work. He blesses work. He honors it as something made for us to be a part of. And Jesus, New Testament, flash forward. He builds tables, builds chairs. Work isn't beneath us. 
But a part of our design isn't that good news. And no one looked harder at this idea, I think, than, than Martin Luther, the great reformer. And in his day, you may know, the only people who were <clears throat> considered to be really important or had a calling were people who worked inside the church, vocational ministers. The only real work that could ever be done was by monks and priests and nuns inside a church building. And these people were called the spiritual estate. And if you weren't a part of the spiritual estate, your work was seen as demeaning and lower and second class. And Luther didn't like that, along with a lot of other stuff he didn't like. And of course, Luther was a good pastor for his people. And here's what he wrote. He said, quote, oh, it is pure fiction (laughs) that the Pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called the temporal estate. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy. God, could you speak your mind, Martin? You know, if you only felt free to say what you thought, I don't know. It's like a blunt force instrument. Thank God for him, though. Yet no one need be intimidated by it, and that for this reason. All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them. We are all consecrated priests. St. Peter says, you are a royal priesthood and a priestly realm. Revelation says, you have made us to be kings and priests by your blood. Amen. Luther's arguing that every job, if it's not you know, inherently evil, uh, you know, like drug dealing or telemarketing, uh, is equally (coughs) a calling from God. People ask me all the time, Morgan, what's it like to be called into ministry? I say, well, what's it like to be called in the teaching? What's it like to be called in the business? What's it like to be called in the education or medicine or homemaking or, you know, veterinary medicine? What's it like to be called into these things? My identity's not as a minister. I love what I do. I love you all being here with you. But I do it because God's assigned me to do it. Like he's assigned you to do something. It's what I can do to serve, I hope, the most people with what he's given me. I'm not more valuable to God. Ministers aren't more valuable to God because we're in vocational ministry, right? And by the way, if you believe what the Bible says about our future, about the new heavens and the new earth in that day, I'm going to be out of a job. <laughs> no more pastors and then doctors will be out of a job too, by the way. Sorry, Dr. John. No more lawyers either, by the way. But the rest of y'all will be sailing along using apparently the gifts and talents you've developed over a lifetime. What, 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 do you, what do you have in your hand now? What gift do you have? Listen, God's called you to use it, not just for you, not just to feather your nest egg or 401k, not just to get ahead and make a bunch of money. It is for the benefit of the world, to work the world and and to keep it. And when we use it like that, hey, guess what? Man, it's not just a job. Oh, it's a journey, right? God calls us. He directs us one season of employment to the other. You get to do it as unto the Lord. And isn't that, yeah, good news. There you have it. Number one, we're made for worship that leads to freedom. Number two, for work that leads to meaning. But there's still, though, oh, as you can see in the rest of the passage, there's still something missing here. Genesis 2 said there's still something else that we need from the heart of God that if we miss out on this, we've missed the rest of what it means to be human. We need to complete the human experience. We need also a wedding, number three, a wedding that leads to joy. Wedding that leads to joy. 
you know, the climactic moment, of course, of the whole deal, Genesis 1 and 2, is at the end of chapter 2 where there's the first wedding in the Bible and God here, oh, he's the father, right? Uh, You can see he's presiding in a way over the wedding. He's walking his daughter down the aisle, presenting her to the man. And when the man sees her, oh, it provokes his heart. He sings the first song in the Bible, real, the first work of art here. It's It's a love poem. First love song, fellas, take note. Here we go. I said, he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And by the way, every time I hear this, I think this is basically Adam doing a, like a pre-version of Ella Fitzgerald's great song. At last, my love has come along. Come on, some of y'all know that one. I know. You ought to. Why does Adam sing? He sings, here's why. Because he says, the like opposite one has come along. The like opposite one. God says, listen, I'm going to make a helper. Here's the word. Fit, says one translation. Suitable, says one translation. Uh, help meet, says another translation. But it's really trying to get across a phrase. Of the like opposite one to him and helper. By the way, the word God uses to describe who the woman is means, of course, a strong warrior. It doesn't mean like a, like a, you know, like the help, the maid. No, it's a military term used by God to describe himself throughout the Old Testament. And God says, I'm going to make like this strong warrior military type, Adam, and she's going to come alongside you and you guys are going to rule the world together and she's going to be like you but opposite you, like opposite, like you. She's made from the same material, the dust of the earth, but she's not like you. She's not an animal. She's different than you. And together now you come together like two puzzle pieces made from the same material, like but opposite. And together it's a picture who I am. And when Adam sees this, the like opposite one coming toward him, he sings And there's a wedding and a union, and the Bible celebrates this union and celebrates especially their sexual union here. But as much as the passage is about the goodness of marriage and about the unashamed rejoicing God does in the sex act he designed, it's about something else first. Something more profound, I think, for all of us, whether we're married or single. And that profound thing is simply this, that God looks at his perfect creation, perfect creation. He's designed and made on purpose. And he looks at all of that and he looks into the heart of the man and he says, there's something not right here. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, you may have heard that before, but I want you to consider it in two lights today. First, this means that no matter who you are, no matter who you are, uh, even if you're the greatest Christian in here, you've got the greatest walk with God, you've got some career that's exploding today, no matter if you've got a great walk with God, a great career, that you're, you're still not complete. There's still a not goodness about you until you are deeply immersed in relationships with other people. Other Christians especially, which means that, of course, church then becomes far less about you and your worship, about you and your sermon, or you and your learning, or you and your individual growing. There's a not goodness about your life until you're deeply entrenched, involved, and matched with other Christians. A way of putting it would be this, that God could only call, really, your life good if you were walking with other people as closely as you were walking with him. Can you see that? 
But second, and perhaps I think even more profoundly, what this also shows us is the key, the very key to having and sustaining these relationships. What this shows us is that God made us to not need him exclusively. Did you catch that? God had us all to himself and yet was willing to not keep us to himself. God made us to need someone besides him. Oh, listen, this is the ultimate act of humility in creation, at the very heart of creation. See, in a way, God was modeling for us the humility we need to have the joy we're looking for in relationships. I mean, come on, what, what, what caused Adam to sing like this? What, what moved Adam to poetry and song? You say, well, many songs, naked wife coming toward him. That, I mean, that would cause any brother to sing right there. And then, and listen, what caused, really caused Adam to sing? What brought him this joy he had to express? The joy that's in any great relationship or friendship or marriage. What brought that joy into the world? Was the humility of God first. The humility of God that said, I'm going to give Adam what he needs, even if I have to diminish in a way. I'm going to give Adam what I can see he needs most. And listen, this is the key to creating joy in friendships, in church community, in your marriage. Giving to someone out of your own self what brings them joy. Oh, and when that kind of humility exists in the center of any relationship, joy is an unavoidable byproduct. Can you see the heart of God here? Giving away space in Adam's heart, creating it for someone else. That's what love does. It defers and puts itself second. And now, can you see then, in that light, the absolute betrayal of Adam and Eve, the absolute selfish thing they did? When they, how could they have believed the lie that God was not for them? I mean, can, is this what you're doing? Can you, how can we say God is ever not for us? How can we believe like God is holding out on us when he's already done this for us? The Bible begins with a wedding. The purpose, the purpose of that wedding was to fill the world with the children of God, but that marriage failed, that wedding failed. Why? Because, as we'll see next week at length, it's because the husband failed to step in and help his wife. Oh, but did you know that the Bible also ends with a wedding, in a wedding, another wedding the New Testament calls the wedding supper, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and its purpose will be to fill the new heavens and the new earth with the children of God. But unlike this first wedding, first marriage, that wedding will succeed, that wedding won't fail. Why? Oh, because the second husband, the second groom, the second Adam, the last Adam, he succeeded where the first husband, the first Adam failed. Jesus Christ came and in another garden, he did what the first Adam couldn't do. He set us free to worship. He set us free for work and set us free to release our hearts into the joy he has made us for. And for this reason, this man, Jesus, the last Adam, he came. He left his father in heaven to come to earth, to be united to us, to cleave to us, to hold us fast that we could become one with him. And therefore, because of that, for an eternity starting now, we can be in his presence naked and unashamed. Oh, yes, that's what we, he came to do for all of us. Does this sound like the perfect life? Yeah. 
That's what we were made for. That's who we are. And now that's what we labor for, don't we? On behalf of others. And that's what we'll have again for an eternity because of the victory, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. He died for our freedom, for our meaning, and for our joy. Friends, these things are ours in the gospel.